questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, Katie Morton. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I have been creating educational mental health content online for over 10 years now. <laughs> it's been a long, it's been a long road, but a fun one. Now today I have 10 questions. And if you are new to this podcast, welcome. I receive my questions over on the YouTube channel of this podcast. So if you honestly, I bet if you went over to YouTube and put in ask Katie anything or Katie Morton, ask Katie anything, it would come up. But the podcast channel name is opinions that don't matter. That's the name of the podcast that I have with my husband that houses all of our podcasts. And we have 10 questions today. And they are all over the gamut, but it's just always funny because we have themes almost every week. And this week's theme has a lot to do with how a therapist feels in session with their patients when patients are having a tough time. And there's also some trauma stuff in there as there always is. Um, But I guess without further ado, let's just jump into it. Now, this first question says, do therapists ever get annoyed when clients say, I don't know a lot during sessions. I find myself saying, I don't know to questions in sessions quite often, you and everybody else, even if I do know, and I don't really know why I do that for real. I don't know this time. <laughs> That's funny. It just comes out and it seems to be my go-to phrase. It's not that I don't want to open up or talk about the issues that I'm having because I do, but I guess maybe in some way I just chicken out and say, I don't know. I'm guessing my therapist probably picks up on me saying that I don't know so often, but will they see through that if that's the case? And what can I do to stop doing this? So there's a bunch of different questions within here, but the first question, do therapists get annoyed with this? No, this is extremely common. And there were a lot of comments below this, lots of kind of assistance or letting them know what their therapist has said or what they also experience. And it was all right on point. I don't get annoyed when my patients say that I don't know because it is this knee-jerk reaction. It's, it's kind of like our go-to. It's like when people ask how we're doing and we just automatically say, fine. We don't really check in with ourselves, right? We don't see how we're doing. When people say, hey, good to see you, Katie. How are you doing? I don't stop and go, hmm, how am I doing? Let me think, right? I go, oh, I'm great or I'm fine. How are you? You know, we just move right through it. And this I don't know is that version in therapy because it can be just like a a placeholder or a um, a quick response so we don't have to think about it. And it can also be because we're really uncomfortable with silence. I've heard that from you guys over and over and over in past podcasts. The silence is, is uncomfortable. And so we'll fill it with the I don't knows. Now, I don't get annoyed because it's just so common. It's just part of like our human response. What I do do as a therapist is I allow for there to be silence after that. So if I say, you know, and, and how'd that make you feel? Let's say that that was my question. And my patient says, Oh, I don't know. And I'll just sit with it for a minute, you know, just kind of sit, let, let the silence hang and say, is anything coming up for you? If we take our time instead of, you know, you don't have to respond quickly, right. Then I'll try to like validate, try to, uh, 
let them know it's okay to not know and we'll take our time. And just leaving that space often allows for people to open up. Now, I do have patients on the other end of the spectrum who maybe really don't know, and then we'll dig into that. So I'll leave the space always and leave the time always because I don't want to make any rushes to judgment or rushes to move on because people might just need some time, right? We might not know, but if we think about it, hmm, some things come up. And so I'll leave that space and then I might ask follow-up questions. So let's say they're like, no, I, I still, I'm not sure. And I'll be like, okay, well, if, is if, if we're talking about feelings, I'll be like, okay, if I told you, let me just name some off and I'll pull up some on my phone, even the feelings wheel and I'll just name off some. Let me know if any of these resonate with you. We can start there or I'll say, well, last time we were talking about something similar, you mentioned this, that, and the other and see if any of those resonate. And so we just kind of take our time, be curious, not judgmental or be detectives, you know, about our experience. And we'll learn and we'll slowly figure it out so that we, you know, do know. But I feel like for a lot of us, it's protective, it's a space filler, and it's just an automatic knee jerk reaction. And now there's another I'm going to make sure I answered all the questions. Yeah, in some way, just chicken out and say, I don't know. Um, I'm guessing my therapist probably picks up on me saying it. What can I do to stop doing this? Honestly, let your therapist know that you're doing this. Like, I'm, I'm sure they know, but I'm just saying, let them know what you're telling me your next session, just say, Hey, I realize before we get into everything, you can just do it right when you walk in. I have some patients do this. Like I open the door to let them in and they're like, blah, blah, blah. they tell me something right away. I would do that right away. And I would say, you know, I've been thinking about um, our work together. And I noticed that when you ask me something difficult, I'm automatically say, I don't know, even if I do. So I want to stop doing that because then they can work with you in the moment because you can't on your own, just stop doing this. I mean, sure, you can try to recognize before you say it, but if it's this knee jerk thing, you need your therapist to help you dig in to figure out why, like what's the reason behind it? What's like the root of it? Is the root because we feel it's like a defense mechanism or is it just a space filler because that quietness is too uncomfortable? Like, and then we can dig in more, but like, where is it coming from? And, and letting your therapist know that you want to stop doing this and you don't like that you do it. And sometimes you actually do know you just say, I don't know, they can help you push through, figure it out and work to find, you know, to actually talk about it. They can, they can help you. So I would bring that up and that's how I would work through it. Now there was an add on question to this and it said, Katie, as an add on, when talking about trauma, if we keep saying, I can't go there or I can't say like we've hit a wall, is that annoying to, to your, to the therapist? And the short answer is no. When it comes to, th to trauma work, especially, we have these limits, right? We can, we can reach our limit because if we push too, too much farther, we can feel like we're going to be re-traumatized, maybe dissociate, have a panic attack or any of those things. And being a therapist is a lot of this like balancing act of challenging our patients enough that they get better, but not pushing them too hard, too fast that they become overwhelmed and it's actually detrimental. And so you letting your therapist know, hey, here's my boundary. This is what I'm able to do is really helpful and actually part of the process. Now, I will say that if I do have patients say this all the time and we're just never able to make any progress, like they just aren't moving even incrementally to talk about more, then I might look into other trauma treatment options because I'm not a trauma specialist. So I might call my good friend, Dr. Alexa Altman, 
and ask if she has any openings for EMDR and refer my patient to give her a call or something like that. Um, or, you know, look into schema therapy or somatic experience or just other trauma treatments, because maybe the one that I'm doing isn't effective and isn't helping you. And the sooner I know that, the better, because then I can offer other resources. So no, you don't get, I don't get annoyed at all. No therapist would. It's more just trying to find the best way to help you. There was also a comment on this that said, as an add-on, do they ever get annoyed if their patient struggles to open up? I've been seeing my therapist for a year and we still often sit in silence and I don't know what to talk about. I think I'm being open, but I never know what to be open about. I still can't work out what I should be saying. Will Will we get to a point where, oh, will they get to a point where they just give up and tell me it's not working? Truthfully, you have to let your therapist know that you don't know what to talk about. That's okay. I think a lot of the issues that we're having in therapy is because we're not telling our therapist where we're at and what we're thinking and feeling. It's perfectly normal to tell your therapist, hey, uh, I, I don't know what to talk about. I'm, I don't know what to bring up. And now I feel like we're not making progress and it just causes me to you know, feel whatever. Maybe we feel anxious. Maybe we feel overwhelmed whatever it is, just let them know because then maybe they can assist. Again, as a therapist, we don't work harder than our patients, but we try to meet you where you're at and ask challenging questions to move things along. And so maybe we just need a few more challenging questions to help move us along. Or maybe we need to put together a treatment plan with them. You can even bring that up. Say, I feel like I need to go over the treatment plan again and come up with some some goals so I know what I'm working towards so then I know what to talk to you about. And that can just give us a little bit of kind of structure and guidance because I will say that if if we're not opening up, if things aren't improving and we're not getting anywhere, a therapist might say, hey, let's take a break and maybe come back when you're ready. Because that lack of opening up and the lack of progress to me, and they, maybe it's just the way I was trained, but that that shows me that maybe you're not ready, right? That maybe this isn't, we're like not at the, like we're gonna have to wait because you're not quite ready to open up and actually participate in therapy, which is okay, to each their own, right? It's just all about timing and where we're at. And so I may, I wouldn't like never see a client before again after something like this, but I would tell them, hey, you know, maybe we take a little break until you figure out what it is you're wanting to work on. So then we have some structure. We're not just wasting your money and time. You know, I've said stuff like that to patients before. Now there was another question that said, as an add-on, will my therapist get annoyed if I struggle to open up? No. I guess she's proud of me for opening up a bit more, but I can't tell she's annoyed because it's so hard for me. We don't get annoyed. Everybody struggles to open up. I mean, well, I I shouldn't say everybody. I'd say it's like 50-50 because 50% of people are like yours truly where I just like verbally vomit everything that's going on in my head and I like open up to like really quickly, whatever. Um, That's just the type of patient that I am. And then there's the other 50% who struggle because it feels weird, right? We're talking to a stranger about things we don't talk to people about. And that can be so weird. And maybe we don't even know what language to put to it because we've never, you know, we've never talked to anybody about it. We've never said those words out loud. You guys, I have to look off to the side because little Roxy here is asleep in front of the front door. (laughs) She's too cute. She's all curled up in her little legs. Oh my goodness. Okay. Anyways, we don't get annoyed. It's just part of the process. And just letting them know, you know, that you're struggling. That'll be helpful. Okay. And then someone said, another add-on, when I'm not in session, I always tell myself, just speak about everything you're feeling. I love it. Simply because since I've listened to these podcasts, I know that therapists shouldn't be judgmental and that they are here, they're there to hear all our crap. And that is true. For me, all the trauma 
uh, for me, the trauma, I just want to yell it out because it's locking me up. However, I always say I don't know, even though I do know because it's in my head every night. Do therapists really catch on a client holding back information? And if so, why don't they always confront clients about doing so? That's a great question. Yes, I I wouldn't say 100% that we know when you're holding things back, but I like, let's go 80% just to be generous. And I, I, it might even be more, but usually I know when people are holding back. Not always though. People can be really good liars. But when we're holding back, I think... We, we catch on, but we don't confront it because if you're not ready to share it, it's not up to us to force you, right? We don't want to move, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, like it's this balancing act of pushing you enough to challenge you and help you get better, but not pushing you so far that you're overwhelmed or re-traumatized. And so if you're not ready to open up and share something, I'm not going to push you. I may try other ways in, right? I've talked about... um uh, like being like a locked up house, like our brain or our memories or our experience being like a locked up house. And I am a burglar, which I know is like not the best, but let's say I live in the house and I locked myself out. How am I going to break in? That's maybe that's a better visual, but like I'll, you know, try the basement, that little window and see if I can Jimmy rig that open or I'll check all the other doors and windows to see what way I can get in. And what I mean by that is asking a bunch of different types of questions to see what will give what helps you feel calm enough and okay enough that you can share about it? Because even though it might not be the the real question that I have, it might be getting us closer to that. And so we we won't like confront you holding back, but we will try other ways in. And they probably are doing that and you probably don't know, but that's that's how we do it. Um, and the reason we don't confront it is because of the reasons I said, like re-traumatizing, pushing you too much too fast. And we don't want to do that. Now, the final comment on this said, Why do we feel the need to suddenly say, I don't know, or stop talking? I feel like I'll finally be able to open up and talk about something for a couple of minutes. And then all of a sudden, it's like the switch gets flicked and I can't talk because my anxiety goes crazy because you've been triggered. That's the thing about therapy that I think a lot of us don't recognize is that even though it's a safe environment and maybe we really, 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 really want to get better and we we have all these answers and they ask a question and we just go blank because we're triggered, we're overwhelmed. And so let your therapist know that this is happening and then work to come up with some things you can do in session, prior to session, after session to calm your system down. These can be things like doing a full body shake before you get in your car to drive to therapy or it could be having like some calming tea Like I always offer my patients tea or coffee or water if they want at the office. And maybe you can bring your own if you have something particular that you like. Or like uh, I used to, I always had like a thinking putty. It's like a silly putty thing in my office or a blanket. Like we had to think of the resources that we have. I also had a patient used to bring like really, really cold water with just mainly just ice and then would slowly melt because that would help keep her grounded. Um, But figure out some of the things that that are soothing or grounding to you so that you don't try to open up and then like the switch gets flipped because what's happening, that switch that's getting flipped is that your nervous system is becoming overwhelmed. And that's why your anxiety is like through the roof, right? We're like triggered and it starts to build up and it gets too much for our system. And then we're like, boop, we shut down, right? It could be dissociation, could be panic attack for you. It's just your anxiety peaks. And then we're not able to communicate anymore, right? We're not in our, our wise or calm mind We're we're pushed out of that. And so having those things in office before and after to calm us and soothe us can be extremely beneficial. So yeah, that's 
That's what I recommend. Keep me posted. Okay, let's move on to question number two. And this question says, hi, Katie, do you ever get annoyed with your patients? So much curiosity about annoyance. I feel like I'm annoying my therapist because I repeat judge myself or I repeat judging myself. And she keeps telling me that it's her job to sort through my thoughts. And so I should talk and not overthink it. Oh, easier said than done. But I feel like I'm taking away her time that way. So I often just sit there in silence battling myself. So I think my therapist gets annoyed and frustrated with me. Every time I tell her that I think she might be frustrated, she says that I'm frustrated. Is that um, is that all it is? Am I just that way? It's frustrating to always think about it. Okay. It's interesting. I, I would agree with your therapist that you are the one that is frustrated and annoyed with yourself. It's this judgment and this negative self-talk that's spinning because that's what's pushing you to ask her, like, is she annoyed? Is she frustrated? Right. We are so worried about it, then overwhelmed because we are thinking that like, I'll even give a personal example. You guys know how I like I'm a recovering people pleaser. And if I'm in like a grocery store or something and someone is like moving closer to me, looking like along the aisle, I will think, oh my God, oh my God, I'm in their way. They probably need the thing that's right in front of me and they're just being polite. Move. Like I'm making up all these assumptions and telling myself this crazy stuff and they they think I'm in my in their way and I need to get, like, again, pretending there's a conversation being had that's not pretending that, you know, that they are frustrated or that I'm in their way. Sorry, guys, I have, if you're watching, I have a tickle hair in my shirt and those are the worst. You know, those ones that get down the back of your shirt and just tickle you. Um, anyways, I have made all these assumptions and had all these thoughts in my mind because I am the one that feels like I can't take up space, right? It's actually about me, has nothing to do with that other person. And that's what your therapist is saying. And that's what's happening here. This has nothing to do with your therapist. Your therapist isn't judging you, that your therapist isn't telling you that, uh, that you, you know, that you're frustrating. They're not telling you that, you know, anything you're saying is wrong. You're the one saying that to yourself, but you're like transferring it on to your therapist and, and saying like, are you frustrated with me? I think you're frustrated with me. And so it is more about you. And I really think that recognizing where those thoughts are coming from, how often we're having them, what those thoughts really are, and working to use bridge statements to move them in a more balanced way. So instead of the thoughts being like, uh, let me see, you're like judging yourself. So I'm so stupid. I can't believe I can't get this. I don't know what's going on with me. Like all of those judgmental thoughts, instead of taking it in that direction, what if we said, you know, I am open to the fact that I struggle with negative self-talk and I know, I believe that through working on this, it can get better. Maybe, maybe that's it. I know it doesn't seem too positive, but it's not as negative as it was before. And so just being aware of what you're saying to yourself, being aware of like the judgment that you're holding and the the assumptions that you're making when we have no evidence to support it, you can check your facts too, if you don't believe me, but that can hopefully pull you out of this because it's just like, you think that your, your therapist is annoyed with you and is judging you. And then you overthink it because you don't really believe it because you have so much judgment and stuff on yourself. And then we sit in silence and battle ourselves for it. And then we go around, around, you know, we kind of get caught in this. And so your therapist is not annoyed or frustrated. She's just trying to get you out of that cycle. And so being more aware, letting her know this is like the process. If you can even break it down in your journaling to like, what are the, the thoughts I'm having about myself? Like I said, tracking those. What are the feelings that I'm having about these thoughts? Feelings are things like, um, you know, 
I feel frustrated. I feel annoyed. I feel um, overwhelmed. Maybe I feel sad a little bit, or maybe I feel angry. I don't know. And then what behaviors do we have out of it? We have overthinking. We have maybe um, be sitting in silence in therapy. Like pay attention to this and let your therapist know, hey, I've noticed this pattern. How do I stop it? And they can work with you. And it usually it starts with the thoughts. So that's why I was like, pay attention to those thoughts and challenge them a little bit. Okay. Now there was a comment on this and said, as an add-on, if a client sends multiple emails in the week, is that extremely annoying? Or do you look at it as um, as we're having an extra hard time. I feel like I'm always bugging her with my emails. I often apologize in my emails that they are too long or that I'm sending, um, or that I'm sending another one. Okay. That's it. Period. And then there's another one after this. I was like, wait a minute, that's changing the subject, but okay. I do not, um, I do not get annoyed if I have told a patient that it's okay for them to email me, but here's the caveat. Now a therapist has to give you permission or at least ask for the permission. It's not like they have to give it up front. But I always tell my patients, maybe because I deal with a lot of borderline patients, boundaries are really important. And so I always tell them what's okay and what's not okay. So I will say, when I prompt you in session to send me an email, you may do so. Otherwise, if you send something, know that I will take time at the beginning of our session to read it and then respond with you in session. So I'm setting up a boundary around it because even though emails can help us get things out, like I've always encouraged you guys, if it's okay, send those to your therapist. But I want them to know that I'm not going to read them when they send them and get back to them via email. I don't want to get caught in that. That's not a healthy way to communicate. It needs to happen in therapy as much as possible. And so I will push back on that. But if your therapist has given you permission to send the emails and that's how they, you know, you have this understanding, then it's fine. It's not annoying at all. If I found it annoying, which is not, not even the right word, if I thought it was crossing boundaries and getting to and turning into something inappropriate, I would bring it up with my patient and to say, hey, you know, I've noticed that you're emailing a lot in between session. And I'm wondering if maybe we need more sessions during the week, because as you know, I don't have the time to read through all of those emails. So they're not going to get answered. And I don't know if that's really helpful for you. I would just be honest, right? Um, so that's that. those are really my thoughts about it. It's completely fine if they gave their permission and it's okay. And then someone said, oh, to add on, what's the difference between frustration for being really mad and just um, and just by being stuck? I don't think I'm making sense, but I'm not sure how to explain it. My therapist is sort of frustrated because we are both stuck and I'm just challenging her repeatedly to her frustration. Gotcha. Okay. So when we're frustrated by being stuck, it's like trying to find a way out. I've had a patient like this too, where we were both kind of stuck. We weren't really sure where to go next. And some of it had to do with the defense mechanisms of my my patient. And some of it had to do with us not really knowing what the end goal was and like all the tools and things we're trying aren't working, right? So it's like trying to come up with more tools. Now, I personally am part of, or I was, I guess, not anymore, but I was part of this journal club, which was a monthly get together with other clinicians. So psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, social workers, everybody. Um, and we would talk about cases where we felt really stuck. Now we don't share, for any of you who know, consultation is part of being a therapist because we need this support, right? Sometimes I feel stuck and I need some help. I need another perspective. Now we don't share a ton of your personal stuff. It's just enough for them to understand why we're stuck and help us get out. But that happens. And I think the difference, so the question is the difference between frustration or really, or being really mad and just being stuck. So being mad is different than frustration. Frustration is like, oh, I wish I could figure this out, right? I'm frustrated. I thought I could do this and I can't. 
Being mad is like actually angry at something or someone. And so that's the difference that I would put. And just being stuck, you can, stuck is just, I don't have the answer right now. I'm still figuring it out. So I I feel like they're very different, although there can be overlap. Like if I'm angry at Sean, let's say for uh, doing something, and then he he's not seeing my side and he keeps like pushing back, I can get frustrated as well. Do you see what I mean? But in therapy, I can be frustrated because I just don't have the answer right now. And I feel really stuck and I don't like feeling stuck, right? But I'm not mad at you. I'm just frustrated with, with this situation and the process that we're in. I hope that helps and explains it. If not, let me know. Okay. Question number three. I have a little water here. It says, hi, Katie. Do you have any advice on talking to therapists about their reactions to things said in therapy? Recently, I disclosed to my therapist details about a specific instance of childhood sexual abuse that I've always found particularly shameful and had really been struggling with. At some point while I was speaking, I noticed that she covered her mouth. And although she reminded me that it wasn't my fault, she still tried to switch topics not long after and encouraged me to talk about things I was struggling with without talking about my trauma. Hmm. On one hand, I think it is possible she was a bit surprised because she'd been talking about something very different, or she may have wanted me to switch topics to help with my dissociation. Oh, possibly to bring you back. Yep. But on the other hand, her reaction made me feel more ashamed and embarrassed for bringing it up in the first place, rightfully so. It's made me question whether it truly makes sense for me to delve into past trauma during therapy. I want to tell her this, but she's human and doesn't it doesn't seem fair to me to ask her to not react in certain ways. She also hasn't reacted in this way in the past. Do you have any advice on how to bring this up with my therapist? Okay. So there are follow-up comments below this, but really, first of all, I'm sorry that as therapists, we're not supposed to have those reactions, but we're human and we're not perfect, right? And so the best way to bring this up is at the beginning of your next session, and be prepared, write things down, practice saying it out loud. So when you get there, you can say it. But I would just say, you know, last week, or like, let's say three weeks ago, when I was talking about some of the abuse that I sustained as a kid, and I was sharing that for the first time, you you covered your mouth and acted shocked. And I know you're human, and can't control reactions. But that reaction was very hurtful for me. And it, it's made it difficult for me to continue opening up. Now I know, you're like, Katie, I don't want to shame her or blame her, but she did something that wasn't okay. And if we're going to continue down this path, which I disagree with you, I think it is definitely worth your while to keep talking about your trauma. I know in your question, you said, I don't know, you know, if it's good enough, if it like makes sense for me to even do this work, it does and it will get better. But we have to let her know that these kinds of reactions are super offensive and really hard for us. I'm I'm shocked by her reaction because as a therapist, we have a pretty good poker face. We can hear things that are shocking, that are painful, that are hurtful, that are, you know, a lot to take in without as much as a little twitch of a muscle, or at least that's, I like pride myself on that, but it sounds like your therapist didn't. And so that's how I would let her know. I mean, it is important that you keep doing this. So we're going to have to tell her that those responses and reactions are not okay. And they're only furthering your pain, right? And I have to be honest also, if you 
if, if it doesn't get better and if you don't think this is a good fit, there's nothing wrong with switching therapists. It's about you getting the help that you need. And maybe we need a trauma therapist or a trauma specialist or someone who's at least trauma informed who doesn't make these kinds of errors. But again, that's how I'd bring it up. And I am sure she'll be apologetic. I don't like that she changed the topic and stuff. She might have been helping you stay present and not dissociate. But when you're like talking about something so intense, I I don't know. And, and then, okay, sorry. Now that I, I'm just letting my brain like percolate as this is happening. And I think that my, so at, tell her about the, how that reaction was painful. Like, like I'd already given you some verbiage earlier. And then I would tell her, you know, and sometimes when I dissociate, I, I know that sometimes you're trying to bring me back. Like, I know it's hard for me to stay present. I'd like to have a plan together. Can we put a plan together for things that you can do to help me stay present so that we know when she's doing X, Y, or Z, that that's part of our plan for us to stay grounded. And we've already talked about it. It's already agreed upon so that we're not wondering if that's what she's doing. Now, sure, she's probably still going to do some things to help us stay present that we maybe didn't think of or whatever, but have that conversation so that you're more aware. So we don't feel like, oh, maybe she's just doing this. I want you to feel like you know what's happening and you can make the most sense of it and you feel validated and supported. Okay. Now there was a comment on this and said, follow up with the exact opposite problem. I feel like I get no reaction whatsoever from some therapists, as I was just talking about how I don't show any emotion like that, but I'll tell you what I do do. Um, I've had, okay, whatsoever from some therapists and I've had just, I've had, okay, sorry, I'm reading this wrong. I feel like I get no reaction whatsoever from some therapists I've had. And just feel like I may as well be talking to a literal wall. Ooh, that's not good. I feel like I spend most of my session trying to get an ounce of humanity out of therapists like this when I tell them hard things and they just sit there emotionless. As an autistic person, I struggle to understand um, holistic minds. And it doesn't help with when therapists are mysteriously like this and give me no emotions. So I try to prod them, but with truthful stories to see when they'll start finding the things that I'm saying about my life too hard to hear without crying so that I can get a better sense of the world around me and just how bad the things I faced are relative to one another and relative to the plethora of challenging stories therapists hear in a day, oh, day in and day out. Being met with nothing but a blank face, no matter how much experiences I've flipped my life, oh, have flipped my life upside down and nearly broke me. I feel like they're robots and don't really care when they do this or that they've uh, that the things that I've been through aren't that bad, or perhaps I'm exceedingly sensitive. Thoughts on approaching that? Now, it's interesting that we're like trying to get a rise out of them because therapists aren't going to give you that reaction. the The thing that does suck and that I don't agree with is this like emo- like emotionless, like robotic. Now, if a patient told me, let's say you were sharing about some childhood trauma you sustained and how painful it was. I would listen. I wouldn't react. And I'd be like, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And then I would ask more questions about it. So I wouldn't get to emotion. I, I mean, therapists can cry in session, but I don't, you know, I don't, I don't make it. That's not a regular occurrence for me. That's actually very, very rare. I think I've cried like maybe once, maybe twice. Um, and so I find it interesting. I would be more curious about what the, this, uh, need to have that emotional response, like where that's coming from and why we need that. It's probably because we've minimized and invalidated ourselves or someone else has. And so we're looking for that validation and we should let our therapist know that, that we need that. That would be helpful. I also uh, find it interesting. It might be part of, you know, being an autistic person, like trying to, to mirror and to, 
to read off of other people what's normal. And to that end, I would again tell your therapist because a therapist isn't going to be someone that you like therapy should not. I know it's hard when we um, are autistic, we can find ourselves always wanting to, to mask and mirror and to like fit in, right? We can struggle to not do that all the time. But I would hope that therapy doesn't have to be that place. Like a therapist who understands autism isn't going to be offended or think something's wrong with you if you don't react in the like emotional way that they're expecting. And I do know, and I want to throw this out here, that autistic people do tend to be extremely sensitive because we're always looking in our environment to mirror and to reflect back, right? To, To put on the mask of whatever we think is appropriate. And so we can be really, really acutely aware of our environment and how people are responding and reacting within it. And so I think that that might be part of what's going on here. And it's not a bad thing. Highly sensitive people, I'm I'm one of those, you know, we need those people in our world, but it can, it can help and hinder us. And at this point, I feel like it might be hindering you, but I would let your therapist know about those things. It is important that we have a therapist who's like, uh, helps us feel heard and understood, but we have to sometimes let them know what that is for us because it could be different to different people. And we want to make sure that we're getting our needs met, but also understanding why this need is is so high up on our list. Like, why is this so upsetting? I'm always very curious about that. And I would encourage you to be curious as well. Okay. Final comment on this question says, that is a very interesting question. I've had an experience where I opened up and my therapist's reaction was quite harsh and not empathic at all. I confronted him the next session because it hurt my feelings. His answer was that it's possible that he reacted that way without, oh, that's it. It's possible he reacted that way without any further explanation. So he didn't deny it, but there was no, what? I felt like I needed an apology of some sort, but never got one. Oddly, this makes it hard for me to forget this, and my image of him has changed completely after this, rightfully so. Can I expect an apology from my therapist? How do therapists deal with apologies in general? Now, I would be quick to apologize if that was upset or if, if, if that was upsetting. Like if I did something that was hurtful to a patient, I would apologize just like a regular normal human because therapy is supposed to be that safe place where you can like practice having healthy communication. You can have disagreements. You can have arguments. You can say that they did something that was upsetting and you can apologize. Like all of that should be happening in therapy. It's a great place to practice. And so I would just apologize, but this is very weird. Now I would encourage you one more time to tell your therapist that you felt that their reaction was harsh and not empathic. And then when you brought it up, they didn't give you any explanation and didn't, you know, didn't even apologize for it and see what happens. Because if this therapist can't rise the occasion and apologize, it might not be a good fit because they're not trying to do better. You brought up something, you brought something to their attention that was hurtful and upsetting to you and they didn't even do anything. Like, it's possible that I reacted that like, what kind of, what the fuck, what is that? What is that? What? It's not a, it's not anything. It's not an explanation. It's not an apology. What kind of response is that? It's no response and it's horrible and that's not acceptable in my mind. So bring it up, see if they're going to work to change and then potentially maybe you change therapists because that sounds just terrible to me. Now, there were some comments below this question that didn't relate to this question. For those of you who are curious about this, um, sometimes people will leave comments below a particular question that just doesn't, it's not connected. And that's not the way to get your questions answered. You can ask them separately when they aren't connected to this because this question is all about you know, how like therapists reacting in therapy to things. And so 
dealing with overreaction, underreaction, and what the therapist's role is, is really what this question's about. So if you had a comment under that, you can feel free to ask it next time. Okay. Now, I hope that, that helps. I hope that helps make it makes sense, but we have to tell our therapists if things are upsetting, otherwise they don't know. And if they don't change their behavior, we can change therapists. You know, we have full right to do that. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. Have a little hit of coffee here. Okay. This question says, Hey Katie, slowly, but surely I'm recovering from burnout. Now I'm wondering what I should do with my life. Something needs to change. And I know for the sake of my own mental health, that I need to quit my job. However, I have no idea what job I'd like to do instead. I can't seem to make up my mind. I'm very indecisive and it's like nothing sparks my interest. Even though my current workplace is toxic, I'm very anxious to leave since it still feels comfortable and familiar. Of course, even bad things can feel good, right? Like in that way, because the comfortability, the thought of starting a new job and getting to know everything all over again terrifies me. How do I deal with this? How do I know what I want in life and what job I want to do? Lots of love from Belgium. Okay, great question. Now, it's very normal to be anxious to leave. If you can afford to just quit your job and then figure out what you want to do, I encourage you to do that. But however, I know a lot of us can't, right? Finances are tough and we can't just not have a job for a while. So I would encourage you to spend some time looking into your other job opportunities. And also give yourself permission to start and stop jobs. You don't have to know what you want to do for years. You just have to know what you want to try. So if there is a, let's say you decided that, well, maybe, maybe I want to be a sales rep. Well, I'm going to apply for some of those jobs. We get it. If we don't like it, give it six months and we can quit, move on to something else. No one says we have to keep a job forever. And I encourage you to feel free to explore. Now, if there are particular things that you know you like and don't like about jobs, it's completely fair and reasonable to uh, read up about those jobs, to even talk to people maybe online who have those jobs and what they think of them, what the pluses and minuses are. I'm sure there's like groups on Facebook or people talking about it online in some fashion, or you can just put an ask out there um, on Reddit or something and see what you get. So you can do, you know, things like that or, um, Quora is another place to post questions and you get some really interesting answers. So I think it's okay to be indecisive. And also I do want to uh, put this little, I had a little red flag go up when I was reading this question, when you said that it seems like nothing sparks your interest. I'm suspicious about depression. And so if you find that everything in life just seems like like bland, we're not interested, we don't really like it, doesn't give us joy, find a psychiatrist, find a therapist, Let's start talking about this. I, it could be part of your burnout because we know if burnout goes untreated for long periods of time, it can lead to depression and anxiety. And maybe that's what you're struggling with. And so that might actually be the thing that we should put our effort into is getting in to see a therapist or a psychiatrist, maybe getting on some medication, can, starting therapy if we're not already in it. And then that could help us come out of that depressive episode so that then we can really see what we enjoy and don't enjoy because we all know how depression just likes to snuff out anything pleasurable and be like, nope, don't like that anymore. We want to make sure that we're not making decisions in our life based on our depressive thoughts. Okay. Excuse me. Now there was a comment on this that said, same. In addition to this question, how can I tell if I should be switching jobs or if it's just my depression telling me to run away and do something else? How do I trust myself that this is the right choice? To be honest, I feel, I feel like we can 
easily tap in to our depressive symptoms. So first, my first homework for you would be to kind of pay attention to what your depressive symptoms are. Do they make it so that you don't like anything? Like nothing brings you joy? Is, is that true? Do we know that? Does it affect your hunger and fullness? How about your sleep? How about your relationships? Does it affect your ability to communicate what's going on? Do you struggle to concentrate? Like, give me an idea of how depression affects you. And then see how or if that lines up with the issues that you're having at work. Are we wanting to quit our job just because it doesn't bring us joy anymore and we just don't seem like there's any benefit to it and it's like there's no purpose? Is it that kind of stuff? Because that in my mind could be depression and I would want you to uh, talk to a, a psychiatrist and a therapist about this so we can get your depression under wraps so that we then can make thoughtful decisions. But really paying attention to those depressive symptoms and noticing how it applies in your life will be really helpful and hopefully I'll be like tease this out so you can see what's going on. There's another follow-up question that said, I'm getting further and further burnt out at my current job, and I can't figure out if it's better to quit and have a complete break and then figure out what to do next, like stay in the same industry, but in a different company, or jump straight back to school and changing careers completely. And this is a great question too. The, the truth about it is that you're burnt out. So we're going to have to quit unless they can lessen your workload. If there's some other way to like not feel so overwhelmed at your work, I would encourage you to explore that. But if you can afford to, it's best that we take a complete break. Because if we're just jumping into the same industry or deciding to go into school, we kind of need a little time to think clearly. And since you're fully burnt out, we aren't going to think clearly and we actually can't make good decisions right now. So we need to lessen our workload or quit and then figure it out. And take your time writing pros and cons lists. And yes, I know pros and cons lists, not everybody's a fan, but I, I believe even if we write them out and one has a longer, you know, there's more pros, let's say, but we still don't want to do it. That answers our question. I don't like it. So I'm going to, you know, it doesn't even matter how many pros there are. I hate this job. So I have to quit, right? You, you, even just by doing the act of doing the pros and cons list, figure out what it is you want. Like I remember I was doing a pros and cons list for uh, Pepperdine. I was trying to decide between Pepperdine and Loyola Marymount University when I was deciding where to go to school. And Loyola was more expensive. I didn't get as much help. And that was a big issue. But, and I got into Pepperdine's choir and I was, I didn't, hadn't heard if I'd gotten into Loyola's choir. Anyway, I was making this list and even as I was making it, I knew in my head and heart that I wanted to go to Pepperdine. Like it didn't even matter. There were these like perks, but the differences weren't big enough. Like I think Loyola was like, let's say 5,000 more a year. And in the grand scheme of things, you know, I was like, that's not a deal breaker, right? If I love it, I want to go there. But there were just enough things that were better about Loyola that I thought, oh, maybe I should go there, but I didn't want to. I really wanted to go to Pepperdine. And so I just bring that up because even just the act of me doing that told me what my answer was. I didn't even need to know the pros and cons list. I already knew what I wanted to do. I just had to make the decision. And so that can really help. But I think because you're burnt out, we need to give you a little break so you can think more clearly. Now, somebody has another question says, my question is a little bit different. I left my job after a month. And prior to that, I was out of work for almost a year. I'm so anxious to get back into working. My depression tells me that I can't do it and I want to work full time, but I'm not there mentally yet. How can I get over my thoughts and find a new job? Getting treatment for your depression and anxiety is what's going to be key here. Now, I know you might, being out of work, it might be hard for you to find care, but if you can 
afford to go and see a psychiatrist or a therapist, I'd encourage you to do so. There's a low cost options when it comes to therapy, when like BetterHelp and Talkspace. Uh, I think there's even a link in all my descriptions for BetterHelp that gives you some kind of discount. I think it's like, I forget, like, I don't know, $20 off, $35, something like that. Anyway, but you can get, you know, low cost care to get you back into feeling like yourself because we're not going to be able to you know, if we're feeling depressed and anxious and all these things, it, it might be really hard for us to to start a new job and to do it, it make sure that it's a good job for us. So essentially, we're not thinking clearly, kind of like that last person's comment where, you know, it's kind of getting in the way. And so if we're able to kind of start treating that, then we can try to figure out what job is best for us. And I think it's perfectly okay to take a job right now that maybe we don't like an, a I would call a low lift job. So everybody's abilities are going to be different, but I've had patients do everything from doing like Postmates and, uh, you know, delivery, doing stuff within the apps because they can't, they don't want to do something full time, but that can allow them to make some money so they can pay for their care. You could do something like that. You could also do like a part-time waitressing job if there's some availability. I know they're hiring everywhere, it seems like. So I would encourage you maybe to do one of those lower lift jobs for now if you need the money until we figure it out. We don't have to know exactly what we want to do and like make that choice and jump right in, especially if we're feeling anxious to get back to working and your depression is still like flaring up and telling you you can't do it. Let's get those things under control first and then get our career going again. It's okay to take breaks. It's okay to take time to figure it out. And I really want you to be able to focus your energy on feeling better so that then we can get you a job that fits and is what you want and is fulfilling. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. Um, I think this is the final comment on this, but I will find out as I keep reading. I don't see another one below it, but let's see. It says, to further add on, there's a sudden spike of curiosity in a field that is, compl- is totally way off from the degree that I am pursuing. I've had that. I have no idea what to do after completing my degree. I'm in the second year of my four-year journey. I'm not sure if it's because of COVID, which makes me feel stuck physically and hence exploring mentally to save my sanity, totally understand, or just being a young adult who wants to try out new things, also possible. Yet at the same time, I'm scared that I will screw things up, such as studies, internships, and even therapy. I remembered that you'd mentioned about having our own timeline instead of following the society timeline, as well as it's a process, not perfection. Yes, you are correct. We have to have our own timeline. But I I think that I was just talking to someone about this today, how 18 years old is way, 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 way too young to know what you want to do in your life. And I hate that we pressure young people to figure this out so quickly, because if you're in your second year, you're like, what, 20, 19? That's too young. We don't know what we're doing. Um, it's okay to not know is really what I'm saying. And so my my encouragement for you would be to dig in to that field that's way off from the degree you're pursuing. I don't mean change your major. Let's not make any huge swings. Let's look into it. Talk about it for a while. Okay, so there's two, I had two experiences with this. So I was taking a class called physiological psychology and we were studying the brain and it was definitely, there were a lot of people in that class who were on the path to become a doctor in some form, right? They were like in the, I forget what they called it, but it was like the medical professional path. Anyway, it was a lot of people who were pre-med. I, yours truly, was not pre-med. But in that class, I was like, you know, I really am interested in psychiatry. Maybe I want to become a doctor. And so I talked to a couple professors. I went over to the, um, you know, the social sciences 
building because I actually worked there part-time too when I was in school. And I went over and I talked to one of the, the professors and the person running the social sciences division. And I was like, hey, can you tell me a little bit about what the path would look like here and an overall cost for school and what the courses are? And this particular professor taught anatomy and physiology. And he was like, oh, I can show you like the syllabus, give you an idea. This would be one of the first courses you'd have to take and blah, blah, blah. I like took one look at that syllabus and the cost of me becoming a psychiatrist and was like, uh, fuck no, I'm out. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And, but I needed to do that that searching, that curiosity. I needed to ask questions. I needed to have conversations. I needed to talk to other uh, people in my school. Like one of my sorority sisters was pre-med and I, I talked to her too. I had like coffee with her and was like, Hey, what's this like? And she's like, it is a lot. And, but it's super exciting and blah, blah, blah. You know, I needed to have those conversations. I needed to figure out if it was something for me or not. And I encourage you to do the same. The second experience that I had was when I was applying for graduate school. Many of you know this. I also love to bake. Now, I've been really busy and I haven't had much time for baking. Also, you know, in COVID, I baked a ton at the beginning and kind of burnt myself out on it. But I used to love to try new recipes and things like that, pastries in particular. And so I decided maybe I don't want to go to grad school and become a therapist. Maybe I want to become a pastry chef. And so I applied to culinary school and I got in, you guys. I got in. I can't believe it. First of all, culinary school is crazy expensive, by the way. Like Cordon Bleu is like 56000 a year, some crazy amount. And so that was a deterrent. And then I was talking to my mom and my therapist about it. And after considering like the hours that I would work, I'm not a morning person, so that's kind of sucky and doesn't really work. And then having to work at weird times, if I'm in a restaurant, I'm working like the weekends and evenings. And, you know, there was really no way that that would be good for me in my life when I was really honest with myself about it. But again, I needed to be curious. I went to like some open house thing at the culinary school. It's in like in Pasadena in LA, I think. And, and got to see what it was like and what was available. And then there was also this one, it's called Kitchen Academy or so. There's another one like in Hollywood, I went to theirs. So I bring all that up and share that because I want you to feel free to be curious and to look into it and to ask questions because then and only then can you make a decision that's good for you. It's okay to change degrees and spend more than four years in college. Is it expensive? Yeah. But is it worth it if it's something you enjoy? Yeah. But we need to be free to think about it because the thing that I don't want to have happen is for you to like stuff down this natural curiosity and then wake up in 10 years and be like, God, I hate this job. I should have done that. That's why it's okay to, to think, take a break, look into something, write your pros and cons list, talk to people in the field, do your research, take your time and then figure it out because you don't have to know everything right now. I know they like harp like, I feel like they harp on us and like beat it into us. Like you have to know at 18, pick your major. And even in ma- bigger schools they are like, Oh, you know, by your junior year, if you haven't, or actually I think it's sophomore year, if you haven't declared your major and been accepted into that program, you're never going to graduate in four. Like, could you stress people out more? But I'm here to tell you, take your time. Let's be curious and figure out what we like and don't like. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hi, Katie, why do people not realize that the abuse or toxic relationships, et cetera, that they're in while it's happening? I don't think I've had, I didn't think that I had been sexually assaulted until recently, despite having an understanding of what sexual assault is. Do we put blinders on to protect ourselves? I feel like I can't trust my own judgment anymore. I am seeing a therapist and in a safe relationship now. Thanks for all you do and your new book. Oh, I'm so glad my book has been helpful. Now, this is a great question. And 
there are many reasons that we don't realize that what's happening to us is abuse or a toxic relationship or things like that. And the first is gaslighting. Oh my God, gaslighting. If you don't know what gaslighting is, it's when someone tells us that we remember something differently than it took place. They push us to try to, the goal of gaslighting is to get us to question our sanity. So, you know, people in our life can say like, oh, you're not remembering that right, or that didn't happen, or I never said that to you. You're making that up, right? Even though we know that it happened that way. And it becomes this weird scenario where we, if someone's constantly telling us that we're remembering things incorrectly, we, we can think that we don't, you know, like we're always wrong, that we I question our own sanity. We can think that maybe something's wrong with us. Early onset Alzheimer's. I had a patient who thought they had early onset Alzheimer's for a while due to a narcissistic and gaslighting relationship. So that's a huge component of it. Then the second is, well, and I guess it's almost like second and third rolled into one. Is it the person who's doing the abusing or who's being manipulative or whatever can tell us that this is normal. And if we're young, if we're like a child, we can believe them, right? We can think that that that, that is what it is and that this is what love is or that, that this is how relationships are. People always say they take a lot of work. This must be what they mean, right? And then the the kind of rolling into the third one is the fact that we minimize. When we're in an abusive or toxic relationship, we can think that we're overreacting and we can say like, well, you know, other people have it worse. And like, we all do this all the time, by the way, even when it comes to like COVID, I've done it where I'm like, well, I haven't lost anybody to COVID. So like, I don't have any right to be upset or have a hard time. What? Say what? Why? Why am I comparing? Why am I minimizing? Why am I invalidating myself? But the shame and the embarrassment and guilt and all that's kind of swirling when it comes to abuse and toxic relationships makes it hard for us to feel like we can trust ourselves. Also why gaslighting is a part of it. But we can like downplay it like, oh, you know, I'm just super sensitive or I'm just overreacting or, you know, people are in relationships like this all the time. I remember my one friend, you know, we can try to like, val- not validate, but like make sense of something that's nonsensical through other stories and through, you know, some of that minimization and validation. So that's really why we don't believe it is because the story that we tell ourselves, the story that maybe our abuser is telling us, and the overall like confusing situation that goes on in our brain when we are being abused. Now, there was a comment on this and it said, additionally, I grew up in a hypervigilant helicopter parent or parents and do not remember any sexual abuse. My mom had some in her past as well as a parent with BPD, and my father is a police officer. But I found myself in a few regrettable situations in my early slash late 20s. My mother also asked me once if anything ever happened to me when I was little because I was showing signs of sexual trauma after a failed marriage and a lifetime of depression and anxiety symptoms. Sorry, this is random and so long. Thanks for all that you do. So I wonder, I mean, I guess there's not really a question on this, but I would encourage you to get into therapy and figure out where this is coming from. Now, I want to, so there's a couple of things I want to talk about really quickly about this, is that it's normal to not remember past abuse. As I've talked about, I talk about my book, my new book, Traumatized, and I've talked about it on here and on other videos. Trauma memories are confusing and not always complete and don't always reveal themselves. And it can take time in therapy to recall them if they're there, right? Because if we're dissociated or if our nervous system is completely overwhelmed, sometimes we don't even have those memories to recall. Okay. So that could be happening. And I think, you know, seeing the therapist and figuring that out will, will kind of answer that question for you. 
But here's the thing, the other, the second part that I want to talk about is having these hypervigilant helicopter parents who have, you know, trauma in their past, like your mom and your dad. She has a first responder, a police officer and thank him for a service. But they're like first on the scene and so often traumatized. And your mom having, you know, had sexual abuse in her past and had a parent with BPD has her own trauma. There is a, such a thing as transgenerational trauma. And I talk about that in my book, a whole chapter about how we can pass on the symptoms to our children. And because they're like, a lot of times people do this, they swing from one extreme to the other. So they had parents that were super, super neglectful and abusive. And then they swing when they have kids to like these helicopter hypervigilant overbearing parents, which is just as detrimental to our children. And so I would dig into that in therapy as well, because I suspect that that might be what's happening for you that your mom and dad are so hypervigilant and so helicoptery that they've passed down their own trauma responses to you and you can find yourself on edge all the time and having the same responses as them because genetically and behaviorally, they've given that to you. Like everywhere you went, your mom was on edge or every time a car horn honked, she jumped or, you know, there are things that we pick up on and behaviors that we get from our parents, whether we want to admit it or not. And transgenerational trauma is a real thing. You can look look it up. And like I said, there's an entire chapter of my book dedicated to just that. Okay. Question number six. It says, hey, Katie, would you consider being closeted a form of trauma? So this is a great question. I came out at the age of 18 or 19 after I was closeted for about three years. I am now 24. And I feel like these three years still affect me daily. I taught myself to hold myself back in so many ways, especially in what I say in fear of being, you know, quote unquote, found out. Even if the conversation isn't about sexuality or gender, it could be about anything really. Even though I know there's no need to hide anymore, I still do. Because of that, I find it really difficult to make new connections and to be open with other people, even though I want to be. I was depressed during that time and used self-harm to cope. I want to work through these years and uh, oh, through these years in therapy, but it feels so big and overwhelming that I don't even know where to start. I hope this makes sense and isn't too long. Thanks. Of course, it's not long at all. Um, this is a great question. Sorry, I've got, I got pod nose. It gets too close to the mic and then it itches. So I would, I mean, here's the truth. If you considered being closeted traumatizing, then it was, period. That's it. It's valid. I can't tell you what is going to be traumatizing to you, but I do know that for many many, many people being closeted is an intense trauma. And I know that anxiety and depression and suicide rates are really like, I forget the percentages, but each one has different uh, different percentages, especially where you are in the LGBTQIA community. Each different letter has its own different statistics, obviously, because different people, right? But those rates are higher than people who aren't part of the LGBT plus community. Therefore, I would tell you that, yes, um, you know, being closeted does come sometimes with some mental health or mental illness ramifications because we had to pretend that we weren't who we were. And it's like constantly being hypervigilant, making sure no one finds out who we are. It's devastating to our, our sense of self, our ego, our emotional intelligence, right? Because we're just like stuffing everything down, every part of ourselves and trying to pretend to be someone else. It's a lot of work and it can be really overwhelming. I don't think I have a, 
a friend that's part of that community who doesn't struggle with some form of like anxiety, depression, something, um, hasn't had suicidal thoughts before, especially my friends who are trans, the suicidal, the suicide rates of trans people are much, much higher. So anyways, I don't want to get too much in the weeds on that, but I want you to know that yes, I would consider being closeted a potential form of trauma, but everyone's experience is different. And since you feel like it was traumatic, I agree with you. And I say, yes, it was traumatic because it's all about our level of resilience and what we went through personally. And everyone's situation is going to be different, right? And so when it comes to therapy, if you can find uh, what we'd call like either a, an LGBT plus community-based therapists. There's a lot of those. I know in LA, we had a ton of them in West Hollywood and, and all throughout LA, but in West Hollywood in particular is where I would refer a lot of my patients who wanted that type of support. There were a ton of support groups. Um, there was a great community organization over there that I loved. But anyway, there was that. And then but also you could call them like a sex positive therapist where it's just like, you get to be you. I'm not judging you. I would consider myself a sex positive therapist. You need to find someone who you can talk about it openly with. It sounds like you probably have, but I just want to put that out there for anybody else who may be searching and, and worried. And if you live in a really small, let's say like religious community, that's why Talkspace and BetterHelp are wonderful resources because you can get online and you can get out of your community of, you know, close-minded people and be able to see someone who understands. And then um, when want to work through these years in therapy, just bring it up with your therapist the way you brought it up with me. Tell them what happened. Tell them that you still struggle with this and that you find yourself like not wanting to be found out even though you've been out of the closet for many years and tell them you want to work through it. You don't have to know where to start or what you really need to do to get through it. That's a therapist's job. Just bring it up with them and let them know that this is the work that you want to do and you don't even know where to start and they'll they'll lead you little by little. You'll get there, okay? There was a comment on this and it says, to add on to this, my molester always told me in the face that I know you're a lesbian. Therefore, I tried to prove him wrong by shutting down all the thoughts and feelings I had towards other females. The fact that he knew something before I realized it myself just doesn't sit right with me, understandably so. Plus, I've always had so many people hate on my sexuality and say, go pray the gay out of me. Ugh, so ignorant. Or you probably have been touched as a kid, so that's why you think you're a lesbian. Oh, people frustrate me. What are some ways someone who has come out of the closet? Okay, what are some ways someone who has came out of the closet not go crawling back into the dark closet when experiencing all the hate they get from others for just being truly who they are? To be truthful, get a move. I know this I know that this isn't maybe helpful for a lot of people and they're like, "Well, I can't move and I want to be close to my family." Find the nearest city or the nearest place that has some sort of community for the LGBT plus people. It's I don't think it's healthy to be in that abusive of an area. People talking about praying the gay away and blaming it on abuse that you I, that's not okay. And you don't need to keep dealing with it. And we can't make other people be better and learn more and not be so goddamn ignorant, but we can remove ourselves from the situation. And yes, I know it sucks to be like, well, I have to move into a bigger city that costs more money or whatever, but I'm, that's where you'll find the support. And I mean, also you can just find the support online. If, if moving is like not a possibility, I'd highly encourage it though. Like, I mean, in LA, in particular, and I'm sure in all cities, there's, there's a ton of support, but even in Austin, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, support for the LGBT community. So anyways, long story short, if you can move, please do move closer to 
you know, civilization so that you can get away from these ignorant assholes. But then on the second part is like finding support online, because no matter where you are, you can tap into communities that are supportive and loving, and you can share the issues that you're going through and get some of that support. Also, I really have to push the Trevor Project. If you haven't heard of the Trevor Project, look them up. They have a hotline you can call. And you can get some support and you can talk to other people who are loving in that community and you can get, um, you know, assistance. And I, I know that they have, I don't know all the resources they offer, but you can hop on their website and check it out because we need to get you some more support and get you away from those people. Also, I wouldn't see if someone says pray the gay out of you, don't see that person again. I completely avoid them altogether. If that means you don't go to a certain party or whatever, cause they're going to be there. I would just do that because that that's not someone I want to be part of or know at all. Yeah, I'm sorry. Ugh, people, people frustrate me. Okay, let's move on to question number seven. And this question says, hi, Katie, how do you get over past traumas? Once everything has been aired out in session, I still don't understand how to deal with it or accept these facts. I still find myself replaying my past and it still makes me sad. How do you know if therapy is working for you? Here's the kicker. When I was doing all the research for my my book traumatized, I realized that just talk therapy, airing it out and talking it through doesn't work for, I think it was like 60% of people was the statistic that 60% didn't work for. I always forget if it's like 40 or 60, either ways, I believe it's 60%. So that means that only 40% of people are going to find relief by just talking it out. A lot of us are going to need other things like EMDR or group therapy or maybe I need medication, or there's just a lot of other things, somatic experiencing, tons of different styles of therapy, different things we can do, medication-based and not. But therapy might have worked for you as much as it's going to, and that's okay. And so I would look into alternatives, and that's how you can move past them. Because some people don't even need to talk about their traumas in order to move on. Vagus nerve stimulation is something. There's also something called stellate ganglion block. I talk about all these in my book about other options that you can find and access that could give you relief from your traumas that isn't just talking it out. Talking it out does work again for like 40%, but for a lot of us, it doesn't. So it's okay to get some, what I would call ancillary support, meaning just extra support. And there was a comment on this and it says, and how do I get over my trauma if it isolates me from people close to me and I can't talk to them about it? My mother sexually abused me in the past. And even though I told my therapist, I promised to myself that I would never tell anyone in my family or someone who knows my mother. Why did you promise yourself that? If you need that support, you should be able to access it. You just, I don't understand why you limited it so much. They did something hurtful. You should feel free to talk to people about it. Hmm. Okay. Because I don't want anything to change. I'm scared of what would happen if they would believe me or invalidate my experience because they love her as well. Okay. I can't even imagine telling my cousins or my aunt or even, even though I'm pretty close to them. I fear they will choose her side if I disclose this or dismiss it as an overreaction. I don't want to lose their support and relationships as well. And it feels like I've already lost my mother and there's no way back. And talking about this and family dynamics changing as a result will probably make all of this more real to me. I think that might be the real kicker here is that admitting that this was actually trauma and that you were actually abused by your mother. That's the hard part. And if you tell it to other people, it makes it so. Do you know what I mean? That's why talking to other people and getting extra support can be so incredibly difficult. I think that it actually doesn't necessarily have anything to do. There's a reason that if I was your therapist, I would really want to dig into the the why behind this, like, and put and playing it out. I would make you play it out. That'd be homework, like playing it out to the end. Like, okay, let's, so let's say you did tell your aunt that you're really close with about this. 
what would what would she say? You know, and we do like best case, worst case, most likely case. Okay, but there's still more in this question. Um, uh, and talking to oh, family dynamics makes it more real. Yes. Also, I suspect that my mother may maybe was sexually abused as a kid herself, and her being depressed doesn't make any of this easier as well. Her emotional state is not your responsibility. She was supposed to be your mother and your caretaker. You're not responsible for her. You can feel for her and say, yeah, that that's terrible that she might have been sexual, but we'd also don't know. We're making assumptions. But let's say we knew that she was sexually abused as a kid. We can have empathy for her and feel bad for her. But that doesn't mean that what happened to you didn't happen. Okay. I can't even tell my friends at home as as everyone knows her and I'm scared of someone telling it around. I live in a very small village and everyone knows everything in a very short amount of time. How come you, it's interesting that you're so worried about anybody else finding out yet you really do want to tell other people. That's an interesting, like, I don't know, you know, like doesn't quite go together. It's like, I really need support and need to tell people, but I just don't want people knowing. Hmm. I'd be curious about that. Tell your therapist about this. Okay. Um, says, okay, I live in a very small village. Yep. Unfortunately, this limits the amount of people I can trust and talk to about this to very few. I'm tired of lying about being fine or not being able to go into detail about what's going on inside of me. It's so isolating. What can I do about that? Can I even get through my trauma without telling anyone beside my therapist? You can. Yeah, that's, I think it's very, it's, it's, it's not ideal, but it could work. What would, what did, uh, what would you advise me? Do you think not wanting to tell anyone who knows her is a little extreme or better because I'm protecting myself from being traumatized when talking about it? I think it's a little extreme and here's why you're protecting her. And yes, I know it can feel like, but I don't want everybody knowing my business, but we need the support and something terrible happened to you and you're not at fault. It's that, it's that shame spiral. It's the shame and guilt and embarrassment that like swirls together to create this horrible vector when, when we're traumatized, we get caught into that, right? And it, it's that feeling, it's that swirling that is overwhelming you and causing you to feel isolated. And the truth about this is that you can tell other people we're not responsible for how they respond or react, but talk about it with your therapist and put together a plan of who you want to tell, how you want to tell them. Let's do the homework that I told you where it's like, let's play this out. Okay, if I did tell them, let's worst case, best case, most likely case scenario. Let's think about this and plan because you deserve to not feel isolated. And it sounds like you really do want to tell people what happened to you. You don't have to keep your mom's secrets. I know it can feel like we do, but if you want to tell someone and you've decided that's what's best for you, then I want you to go do it. Because considering people knowing and what that could do to your mom and the family, if you need to do this for you and it's what's best for you in your recovery, you're not responsible for what she did to you. You had no say. You did not cause this. There's nothing that you did to create this. You have the responsibility of working on yourself and healing. And if that means you have to tell some people to get some extra support, I encourage you to do that. Um, I don't know if there's any other questions within this, but you can get through your trauma with just talking to your therapist, or maybe you can access, I know we have uh, some, there's some free groups online through hope for recovery. It's the number four, it's hopeforrecovery.org. And they have a ton of groups on their, you can check their calendar and you can join them and they're all trauma-based. So maybe that's another way to get support without potentially telling people in your village, if you're not quite ready for that yet. Um, but yeah, it, it is easier if we have more support, but we can work through it with our therapist. Okay. Now someone said to add on, 
How do I know trauma has indeed affected me? As I told my therapist's story, she mentioned a few key events that could be potential trauma since a lot of things happened when I was a kid. However, I felt so detached from myself when she asked me about my feelings towards these events. Of course you did. If it was traumatizing, it's overwhelming. We don't even feel like we can connect to that. I recognize that I've been pushing feelings aside, but being detached from myself is like an obstacle. My uncontrollable at times go-to is dissociation, of course, and it's harder to work on those traumas that my therapist has listed out. I'm also scared that while doing all this trauma work, I may not be able to swallow the cold, hard truth. I mean, it sounds like, let your therapist know you're going through this. It sounds like your therapist is aware as you are and as I am that you have been traumatized and we're just not really sure how it's affected you because of dissociation, because of the struggles with memory, because of all the things that swirl together when it comes to trauma and processing it. And I really take your time with it that's really my best advice. It's a lot to digest. It's a lot to to come to terms with and to not minimize or invalidate to support ourselves as we realize what's going on and just how deeply the trauma has affected us. So give yourself time to grieve and to digest. Let your therapist know that, you know, you're struggling like you're afraid you're going to be overwhelmed and letting them know all the things you told me, you know, you feel so detached and it's hard to even connect to this and and let them lead the way little by little and let them know if things are going too fast or if it's too much or you start to feel overwhelmed because the goal is to move you through it in a in a at a pace that feels good for you in a way that doesn't re-traumatize you and allows you to feel some sense of relief. You'll get there, okay? Moving on to question number eight. It says, hi, Katie, how can I set boundaries if I don't even know where my boundaries are? Usually I feel like I don't have boundaries. When someone looks at me, I feel like they are already too close and I can't tell people not to look at me. Thank you for all that you do. Have a lovely day. You as well. Now, setting boundaries is, is tricky. And the best way, and someone left this comment and I loved it. One of the best ways to set our, or to not even to set boundaries, because we have to start by figuring out where they need to go is to pay attention at the end of each day or maybe every couple of days, write down some of the times where we felt overwhelmed, like someone looked at you. Let's write that down. What happened? Who was it? What they look like? Where do they look at us for how long? Like, let's get some specifics. Let's start paying attention to those things. All of those signs and symptoms are symptoms that we've been triggered and someone has crossed a boundary. Now, I know what you're saying. You can't tell people not to look at you and you can't. That to me sounds like a trauma trigger. Maybe we might be a little hypervigilant, but I don't know. But I'd be curious about that as your therapist. But first, we just have to gather the intel. We can't judge it. We just have to be a detective. How often do we feel overwhelmed and people are too close? How often do we feel like people emotionally have violated us? Meaning they took advantage of our kindness and we said that we would help them and they said they'd be, you know, they'd need us for 15 minutes. They kept us all day. Like, do we have these oversteps? Are these things happening? Can we pay attention? Can we think about them and try to recognize them? Let's be a detective and figure that stuff out. Because as we kind of start to get to know ourselves and get to know what's upsetting and triggering, then we can place healthy boundaries with the help of our therapist in place to help us start to feel a little bit of relief and not feel so, so triggered all the time. Does that make sense? I hope so. But the, the someone looking at you, I think, is maybe more of a trauma response. 
And I also have tons of videos about boundaries. So if you want to look up on YouTube, Katie Morton boundaries, they'll pop up. But there was a comment on this too. It said, I suck at setting boundaries, but too, but similar to you, when someone looks at me, I feel like they know me deeply. It's weird and uncomfortable, Katie. Do you know why? I think, again, more of a trauma response. And it could have something to do with a past experience that we've had or feeling extremely vulnerable when we're out in public. You'd have to, I'm not going to have the answer. You actually have the answer. So what is it about it? Why do you feel like they're looking into your soul and like they know you already? Do we feel like we can't protect ourselves? Do we overshare with people that we don't know that well? Do we allow people to take advantage of us and not tell people when we can't do something? Like we have to be curious about this. Where is this coming from? There's a reason and you know, I don't know, but you know. So let's be curious. Now there's another comment says also, is overstepping a boundary. Um, oh, is it overstepping a boundary, even when you don't communicate a certain boundary? Like I thought that there were some things that you didn't have to communicate as they are logical and every adult or everyone in general should know about them. So is overstepping a sexual non-existing boundary a thing if you didn't put one up? The relation, um, oh, and this is the relationship between a parent and their 19-year-old kid. There are unspoken, you don't have to speak about that kind of stuff. If someone's like sexually abusing you or touching you in a sexual way and you didn't say it was okay, especially between a parent and a child, that's actually sexual abuse. Um, I know they're 19, so they're technically now not, so it would, it would be like sexual assault, right? Cause you're not a protected class. You're not a child anymore and it's incest really, but um, it is overstepping a boundary even if it hasn't been spoken about or said, because it's just like, that's just not appropriate. And I don't even know if I'd call it overstepping a boundary as engaging in inappropriate and illegal behavior. That would be more what I would call it. A boundary sounds too light for this. What this is, is abuse um, and assault. And I would, you know, stop it immediately. And how dare they, you know, even punching them, I think is okay. Okay. As long as it's not making your safety, you know, bringing your safety into question even more. And there was another comment that said, and how do you set boundaries with a previous abuser? Hmm. Since my mother abused me, I started to reject all kinds of loving and caring behaviors and affirmations that she directs at me internally and started communicating less and less with her. That's fine. You don't need to be in a relationship with your previous abuser at all. And I, unless you think it's best for you, I would not be around them at all. I would completely cut them off because they're abusive and that's not okay. Okay. Um, I never said anything to her about it, but I don't really like it when she does that. And I'm a little uncomfortable. Of course, of course. I distance myself both emotionally and physically. I don't like her touching me and I try to avoid it. Yes, I understandably so. I never said anything to to her about the walls I built up in front of her and can't bring myself to tell her to leave me alone or go zero contact. I still have big family at home and siblings. You don't have, you don't owe her an explanation. You don't have to tell her anything. I know that it feels you're like trying to take the blame on yourself. That's kind of that like shame, guilt spiral of abuse, but you don't owe her an explanation. All you can just do whatever you need to do that's best for you. And you don't even have to talk to her at all, even though I know you still want to see you know, your family and stuff. You can go see other people and talk to your siblings, maybe meet them out of the house if possible. I would do as much of that as possible and see her as little as possible. So, but at the same time, part of me still wants that love and affection from her. If we were in a different situation, of course, of course, that's part of the inner child work. And I would encourage you to get into trauma therapy as you can work through it because 
just because we had a shit mother that was abusive and is a horrible person, it doesn't mean that we still don't need that mom role and want that caretaker and don't still need the love and attention. And that's why we have to do that inner child work. And we have to find a way to kind of give ourselves the love and affection that we needed from that person that we didn't get in an appropriate way. Um, so they don't know if that makes sense. Totally makes sense. I don't like being close to her because the abuse that occurred, I totally understand. I don't want that relationship and closeness from her now because of all, um, okay. But I somehow still want the relationship from her, even though I know what she gives me can offer me. Okay. So I'm just, this is a very long question. I'm going, the question ends with, are these complex and confused mixed feelings normal when it comes to being abused by parents? The answer is yes. And when our caretakers are the ones that harm us, it confuses the shit out of us because we're supposed to be able to go to that person for love and support. And that helps us feel safe and allows us to develop emotionally. And we can, you know, develop our own sense of self and our own self-esteem. And when they're actually hurting us, it's super confusing, right? It's, it's not how it's supposed to go. And so we can really struggle to overcome this and work through it and make sense of who we are separate from them. And that's why the distance and cutting of that relationship is kind of part of it's key. It's a key part of the healing. I'm not saying you have to go completely no contact. I understand you still wanting to see your siblings and stuff like that. But again, I would limit as much as possible, like 90%. I don't want you seeing or talking to her as, you know, at all, if you can. Um, and what really has happened and the reason that you're like, I still want this relationship and I, I don't know, I kind of want to be around her and it's really confusing, right? I don't want to be around her, but I need it. Blah. It's like, that's called a trauma bond. And I, um, I recorded a video about it. I don't know if it'll go live in time for this probably, but you can check out that video to learn more. But trauma bonds are essentially when we emotionally attach to our abusers as a way to protect ourselves and as a way to cope. And it can be part of that fawning and that fight, flight, freeze fawn that I talked about in an older video. Um, because we're just, we're just trying to protect ourselves. We're trying to get through and we still, we're still children and we still need that love and support from someone. And when we're not getting it from our caretaker, we, or even if our caretaker is abusive, we can go back for more, hoping that this time it'll be different. And it is super confusing and I'm sorry you're going through it, but please, please, please find a trauma specialist and a therapist in your area and start seeing them immediately so we can work through this. Okay. Now the last comment on this question says, what if I'm in a place where I kind of fantasize or almost wish people would ignore and step over my boundaries again? I experienced child sexual abuse by a parent and recently after years of no abuse, they kind of stepped over them again in a sexual way. I felt horrible when it happened and it made uh, made the other abusive instances even more real and tangible to me. But now I sometimes wish that they would do something like that again. Interesting. As I want to harm myself and feel bad about myself, I probably deserve it anyways. And my wish for them or others to violate me again is very intense sometimes. I hope what I'm saying doesn't invalidate anyone's experience. I know how painful and wrong these things are and that you shouldn't wish for something like that. You're not invalidating anyone. This is your experience and it's completely okay. And it's actually pretty normal. And the reason, again, trauma bonds. And we can feel that we need that connection. And that's all we know. I've had so many patients and even viewers tell me how they like, even if it's not with the parent themselves, they repeat these behaviors with other people. And we find ourselves in these other abusive situations. And we feel like, what is it? I have a sign on my back that says like, please abuse me now. Like, why does this keep happening? And part of it is because we don't know any other way. No one's ever told us there's another way to be shown love and affection. 
And we probably feel like we can't trust ourselves or our intuition, right? We think that it's always steered us the wrong way. So how are we going to make decisions? We're going to let other people make decisions for us. And that urge to feel loved and connected and never getting that need met as a child can make us fall victim to things like that and make us more vulnerable to, to letting it happen again. Because again, that might be the only way that we've ever been shown love. And it's not, it, it's a very normal human response. It's not rare, not weird to want attention and affection and care. And if that's the only way we know how to get it, it makes sense that we're looking to get it that way. I hope that that helps and makes sense. And I hope those videos that I've been telling you guys about are helpful too. Okay, let's move on to question number nine. It says, when therapists see clients with high suicide risk, what do you do to prevent them from carrying out the suicide plan? There's a lot of stuff we do. The first is we create a safety plan. So if I know a patient has had suicidal thoughts in the past, I jump right in and we create a safety plan immediately. And I always ask about suicide stuff at the first appointment and then after a few months, just because sometimes people in their comfortability, they'll finally tell me. And a safety plan is essentially like, distraction things that we can do, coping skills that are process-based, like journaling, calling someone, talking to me, things like that. And then some people we can call and some things that we'll do before, you know, we would even consider uh, taking any action, right? And then, you know, there are things like if we think the threat is imminent, meaning it's going to happen quickly, we do all these check-ins. If they have the means and it's imminent, we might have to put someone in the hospital. What we call that in the States is a 5150. I try my best to not have to do that, but sometimes you have to in order to keep someone safe. And that's like a 72-hour hold. So it's like three days at the very least. Usually ends up being longer, um, but people will be hospitalized. There's There are quite a few things. So the check-ins, also part of the the one thing that I will talk with my suicide suicidal patients about is that if they are at risk and the threat is imminent, I need someone I can call who can check on them. So like, let's say I'm supposed to do the check-in with them and I call and they don't pick up and I wait 20 minutes and then I need a, like a, a parent or a roommate or a friend or a neighbor who I can call and say, hey, can you go check on so-and-so for me? I need to have that. And if I don't have that, then you know they'll know that I might call the pet team or there might be other action that will have to be taken after a certain amount of time. And we agree upon all this and I have them sign a little thing saying, you know, this is my safety plan. I agree. This is okay. And it's not really having them sign it to be like, this is a legally binding contract. It's more like I want them to understand that this is what's going to happen if things move forward like that, because it's my goal as a therapist to protect them and keep them from, you know, taking their own life and hurting themselves. And so I'm going to take all the action that I can to, to do that. And so there are these kind of steps that we do. It's like, creating a safety plan together. And then it would be like a safety plan. Uh, sometimes week by week, I'll have them sign a new thing. I promise not to harm myself until I get a hold of Katie or whatever, have them sign that. And then it would be like text check-ins. Um, then it would be like somebody that I would reach out to in their area. And then it might be a hospital like hospitalization or 5150. Okay. Final question. Question number 10 says, hi, Katie. So I recently had, Oh, sorry, before I want to go back to number nine, just briefly, because also, and this might be obvious, but I just want to put it out there, is I'd also want to dig into where the suicidal urges are coming from. When are we most triggered for this? Because that would be the work that we'd be doing in therapy, and it might be trauma-based or depression-based or whatever. But also, obviously, we're going to try to get rid of the reason the suicidal thoughts exist at all. It could be medication also, anything like that. Okay, question number 10. It says, hi, Katie. So I recently had a philosophy professor stand in front of the class and give a small lecture on self-harm. Why is a philosophy professor talking about self-harm? 
I'm curious. We were talking about suicide and its relation to morals. Okay. And that turned into a discussion on mutilation, which led to self-harm. When my professor was talking about this, he gave us a scenario of a girl who was going through lots of I'm not even going to say, he's just saying like things that she used to harm herself. And then he proceeded to stand in front of the class and stick his arms out in front of him and make cutting motions over his wrists. When I was explaining this to my therapist, I told her that I couldn't remember anything that happened after that. And she told me that I dissociated. Of course, what is he doing? What an idiot. Goddamn people. So ignorant. I've been ruminating on this ever since it happened to me. And it led me to a self-harm relapse after almost six months of being clean and in recovery. I'm so sorry. I tried to email this professor and explain how his actions really triggered me, but his response was super dismissive and it made me feel worse. What are your opinions on this? I feel like I'm overreacting and making a big deal out of something that wasn't that bad. No, you are not overreacting. You're not making a big deal. Essentially, this professor stepped into a space that he knows nothing about and he should have shut his mouth. Um, it's fine to talk about suicide or self-mutilation when it comes to morals, like stay in the philosophy realm, but acting it out, giving descriptors and demonstrating is extremely inappropriate. And if he had any knowledge of the psychology behind that or the pain that people feel and why people actually self-injure, he wouldn't have done that. And his him being dismissive, I, I have a couple of thoughts. First of all, I don't know about anybody else, but some professors have huge fucking egos and they need to be punched in the throat. And this guy sounds like an easy punch in the throat because he thinks he's like above it. Instead of just apologizing, I don't know why it's so hard for some people just to apologize. All he would have had to say is, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't intend for that to be triggering. I was just trying to explain what happens and why and all of that. That would Is that that hard? Why is it so hard for people to just say, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that it'd be so triggering. I didn't, I didn't know why. So, so no, you're not overreacting. My opinions on this is he should have not talked about this. He should have stayed with the philosophy component of it and not been so descriptive and gotten so into it. Sometimes I think, you know, teachers don't think about it and, you know, I don't know, just be, they're just ignorant. And it's not that, you know, we all can make mistakes, but again, the apology would have been really important. And, and I mean, if I was you, I don't know how important this class is for your degree, but just, you know, weather it and get through it and don't give him a good review because that's trash. He's that's bad. I can't believe he did that. Um, or if you can withdraw and it won't harm you, you can withdraw. You know, we. I think there's like, I forget how many weeks you have to withdraw, but if you can, I would. If there's someone else teaching the class, maybe take it next semester. Um yeah, because that's just so, so frustrating. And I'm sorry that you had to go through that. But you, you're not overreacting. I think people are just ignorant and do things that are harmful without realizing it. And I'm sorry that you had to, to sit through that. And then it led to a relapse just again, because people just don't understand. And I'm sorry. I hope you found these answers helpful. Thank you so much for your questions. As always, thank you for sharing this podcast. Thank you for listening and watching all of your comments, all of your reviews. Everything is extremely beneficial. If you're interested in any of my books, you can find them wherever books are sold. My first book is called Are You Okay? And my second book, Traumatized, are available now. And you can pick them up wherever books are sold. Have a wonderful week. And I will see you next time. Bye. you've hit a plateau inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know